Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Hillary. And this is the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Season two, we are back to discuss more medical mysteries and rare, strange, or unusual case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from our friends, medical history, journals, and fellow doctors. To protect privacy, names, dates, and locations may have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun. So enjoy. Achondroplasia is the most common type of dwarfism worldwide, affecting one in about 15,000 live births and about 80% of all dwarfs. Today, we welcome our first Olympian to the show, Danielle Kisser. Danielle most recently competed in the Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games, all while being named to the team just three short weeks before they departed. She is here today to talk about all things dwarfism, swimming, and life while not in the pool. Hello, and welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you again for tuning in for another episode of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. I do have a little editing note from last week. And really what I've come up with is we should have taken another week off, Emma. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I ended up uploading the drafts of episode 15 and 16 instead of the final copies. I was going to take them down and re-upload them, of course, once our final editor, my mother, noticed, as usual. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, mom. Yes, I was going to re-upload them, but I thought, you know what? Leave it be. This is our podcast just for fun. It is what it is, and that's what happens when you try to rush something in an already stressful life situation. And as my favorite Peloton instructor, Cody Rigsby says, it's not that serious. (laughs) No, it's not. And here we are on the back half of season two of this podcast with zero experience. You and I are both too stubborn to quit anyway. And I am honestly just happy to be here. Me too. I completely agree with the stubborn to quit. And (laughs) yeah, let's, we're just going to keep, we're steamrolling through. All right, let's go. Episode 17. As you might have guessed from Emma's intro, today we are going to be talking about achondroplasia, which is a term that implies absent cartilage formation, and it was first used in 1878. Now, in 2021, though, this term is inaccurate from a histology and a pathologic standpoint, so both under a microscope and what's presenting from the patient. Although it's technically an inaccurate definition, Its use is universal and has been accepted by the International Working Group on Constitutional Diseases of the Bone. It affects males and females equally, and the estimated frequency of achondroplasia has ranged from about 1 in 15,000 to 1 in 35,000 births. About 80% of all little people have achondroplasia, this specific type of dwarfism. Approximately 150,000 people worldwide have achondroplasia. Achondroplasia is one of the several types of dwarfism that is clinically seen as short legs and arms in comparison to the head or trunk. This means generally the person's head and trunk 
are larger in comparison to the legs and arms. Uh, it follows an autosomal dominant inheritance. So there is a genetic component and it's a defective gene in this specific fibroblast growth factor receptor three or FGFR3 gene. And if you inherit even one defective copy of that gene, you will present with achondroplasia. Thank you for that wonderful intro. Besides the short arms and legs in comparison to the trunk and head, there are a couple other physiological differences that I wanted to point out that can be seen here. A more elongated forehead, having a lumbar lordosis or more curved lumbar spine at the bottom of your back. And probably the most common one that I've read about and seen in person is bow legs or genu valgum. So this is when your knees kind of shoot outwards and then your ankles are more on the inside of your legs instead of them being in a straight line. Right. And that's something that isn't only seen in dwarfism, but can be seen in other conditions of bone demineralization as well. Exactly. So gross motor development is frequently delayed. However, there isn't a lot of intellectual effects. So it's mostly physical. However, severe physical things can be affected, including head control, independent sitting, standing, and those types of actions may lag by about three to six months in development. So we'll get into it in diagnosis, but sometimes um, when they're first born, the parents don't even know that the child is a dwarf. Right. Until you see things like delayed head control, lifting of the head or sitting up on their own or standing and walking and things like that. Exactly. Okay. So there was a study that assessed these functional milestones in children aged three to seven years old. And they found that despite the milestones being delayed, functioning improved between the ages of three and five. Oh, interesting. So it's a little slower in its onset, but it catches up as the child gets a little older. Yeah. So people probably want to know, well, how tall is a dwarf and what does that mean? The average standing height for men is 132 centimeters and women is 125 centimeters. So you mentioned that parents might not even know that their child has achondroplasia until there is sort of a lag in some of those motor milestones, but are there other ways that we can diagnose achondroplasia as well? Yeah. So if the mother has an ultrasound while she's pregnant and they do notice some abnormalities in limb development, her own plasma or a portion of her blood can be analyzed for this FGFR3 mutation. And that can help diagnose achondroplasia and help the family make decisions. There can also be DNA testing performed when both the parents are affected. And infants with affected genes from both the parents are unfortunately either stillborn or die shortly after birth. Oh, so because it's autosomal dominant, you can only receive one defective copy for that child to be viable for life. Exactly. And moving on to treatment options, it shouldn't be about treating dwarfism because there really is nothing wrong or to be specifically corrected with them. They are made equally to us and just as important. However, some studies are using growth hormone to help these young people grow. However, unfortunately, long-term studies to see if this has worked or not have been lacking. So I would like to focus more on the challenges and medical complications that can result from a diagnosis of achondroplasia. 
So the first thing first, and I've seen this firsthand from knowing Danielle and another dwarf friend of ours, um, the first challenge is reaching things. I mean, the world was not made for them and just being out in public with them or, you know, going around a house and seeing the difficulties that they face just to reach things. I mean, there's step stools everywhere. Cupboards are too high. Um, so that's really the first challenge, although not medical. It is a very real day to day issue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am only five, three, which is still an average height human. And I struggle to reach top cupboards in my own kitchen or at the grocery store. Cannot relate. However, I do understand. <laughs> um, the most common feature as a child is recurrent otitis media or middle ear infections in about 75% of people with achondroplasia. Um, and this is common because of poor drainage of the tubes inside the ear due to other bony abnormalities within the face. So as well, due to impairment in the growth of the spine, many dwarfs face symptoms such as back pain, leg pain, numbness, tingling, and even other neurological conditions. More than 50% of people with achondroplasia experience symptoms of lower extremity radiculopathy from nerve root compression or cauda equina syndrome. Hillary, what's cauda equina? Well, cauda equina is a very serious term that requires often neurosurgery, and it's where the disc compresses those nerve roots at the bottom of the spine usually and causes extreme muscle sensory weakness in the lower extremities, which can be life-threatening. And as you kind of already mentioned earlier on, they have an extreme lumbar lordosis or that curve of the lower spine, which probably also puts them at an increased risk of cauda equina syndrome. So we're super happy to be here today. We have another new episode on a topic that was once a medical mystery. However, now it is significantly more common than we think. Um, and personally, this episode is even more special to me because we get to welcome a friend of mine um, to the show. And she is amazing. She's lovely in every way. Danielle Kisser. She is punny. She loves coffee just as much as Hillary and I. Perfect. She also enjoys Lululemon just as much as we do. And <laughs> right. And she's most well known as a member of the Team Canada Paralympic team from the most recent games this past year, I guess 2021, but it was the Tokyo 2020 games. So we finally have brought an Olympian to the show and what a pleasure it is. Wow. Very exciting. After talking about the Olympics in season one, now we have a real Olympian on season two moving up. We are totally climbing up in the world. Danielle is a full-time athlete. She hosts her own YouTube channel called This Little Light. And she's also a university student who is studying a BA in linguistics at Concordia University. So to do it all while being a student and getting a degree is even more admirable. Dedication right there. I wanted to highlight some things in her career. She's been swimming for a long time and we'll get more into it in the interview. Some of her recent breakthroughs and records include in 2018, the Pan Pacific Para Swimming Championships. She broke her own Canadian record and captured a silver in the 100 meter backstroke in the S6 category, which she will discuss more. She also captured bronze in the 50 meter freestyle in S6. At the London 2019 World Para Swimming Championships, she had her best performance in the 100 meter breaststroke SB6, where she finished ninth. And she also competed in the 100 meter backstroke. 
To add one more, at the 2019 Canadian Swimming Trials in Toronto, Kisser's best performance came in the 100-meter breaststroke multi-class final, where she missed the podium by one spot. And just on a personal note, having someone like her on the show is really inspiring for us as able-bodied people to see what someone in a para category can do. And I think this kind of branches really well into our segment, Awareness and Visibility, which Danielle is a huge advocate for dwarfism awareness, and both through her social media and her YouTube channel. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about World Dwarfism Awareness Day, which just happened a couple days ago on October 25th. And so a lot of people I'm sure don't know about the little people of Canada. So this is a nonprofit organization uh, founded in the 60s. So the main concern of this organization is for people of small stature to become useful members of society through education, employment, and social adjustment, and then also focus on the public attention to the fact that there's physical limitations, but it's a function of attitude of both the small person and the average size person. And as average size people, we have to help these people in any way we can. So Little People of Canada, or LPC, helps to connect and facilitate communication between provinces, territories across Canada, and increase the flow of information and ideas that can only better the lives uh, and interests of people in the community. So there is a Facebook group that little people in Canada can be a part of, and it's really good for them and their families to connect with each other. You know, this podcast has a real theme of finding social media-based support groups for different conditions. Absolutely. So little people of Canada and America both have a lot of programs and resources available on their websites, including employment assistance, adoption, scholarships, conferences, and medical support. And I'd like to highlight medical support here because we're lucky in Canada with the way our healthcare system is structured. However, especially in the United States, being born a dwarf could actually just set you up for debt and failure in the future. So medical assistance programs can be really helpful here as a lot of people with dwarfism have to go through several surgeries and rehabilitation throughout their lifetime. Wow. Well, those sound like excellent support groups. And Danielle sounds like an amazing advocate for people to find those support groups. And she also sounds like a superhero with that track record. Or should I say pool record, I guess, seeing as she's a I swimmer. Like pool record. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait to meet her. So maybe now we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll introduce our guest, Danielle Kisser, Olympian. Hi, Danielle. Hello. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you. Yeah, I'm so pumped to be here. I'm excited. Um, can you start by introducing yourself and what pronouns you prefer to use? Yes. Yeah, so my name is Danielle Kisser and my pronouns are she and her. Wonderful. Thank you. So we're going to just start things off right away if that's good with you. 
Awesome. Let's go for it. First things first, I know you personally, so I know that neither of your parents are dwarfs. Mm -hmm. Uh, When did they find out that you, their firstborn, were going to have dwarfism? Yeah, so that's a that's a that's a good question because this definitely doesn't happen the same way for all families. But for my situation, my parents didn't know I had achondroplasia until I was about eight months old. And so when I was born, they just thought I was small because my dad's side of the family is smaller. And so they just thought I took after him. But then once my head started getting a little bigger and my body wasn't growing as much, then they started kind of diving into that a bit more. And then it wasn't until I was about eight months to a year where they were looking at dwarfism as a definite contender. (laughs) I'm sure your parents were surprised by that. Yeah, I think I think they were because there's there's no. It's not like I'm the only one in my family with dwarfism. There's no history of it. And um, it's definitely a shock, I think, especially being the the first one. And when you said diagnosed with dwarfism, like, I guess at that point, they didn't know which type. Like, did they know when it was achondroplasia? Was that at the same time or did it take a little longer for them to figure out the specific type of dwarfism? I think it was around the same type because uh, my orthopedic surgeon kind of pointed them in the direction of getting genetic testing done. And he had uh, been in, he he was very familiar with uh, dwarfism and specifically achondroplasia. And so there's quite a few markers that you can kind of pick up on. And so I think they knew, like they had an idea of my type, but then it was confirmed through genetic testing. Interesting. When did you first notice that you were different? Yeah, that's a good question. So I always answer this uh, briefly by just saying that I don't know what my childhood would have been like if I was tall, because being a little person is is all I know. But I definitely faced quite a few challenges, but also it was it was all I knew and it was it was my life. And so um, I noticed that I think it was, I was around five years old when I started to notice that I was a little person. And we uh, we had just came back from uh, like a, a party kind of hangout with an organization called Little People of British Columbia. So it's an organization in BC that is just uh, devoted to different like LPs in the area. And it's all about welcoming new families. And it's just a place where other dwarfs can get together and um, share common experiences. So we came from a gathering. And I remember telling my mom, I said, mom, am I going to look like this person when I when I grow up and it was another lady who had dwarfism and my mom said yes you are and then apparently I never asked the question again after that and it was kind of like I we call that the moment where I started to realize that I was different like picking up on oh I don't look like my friends but oh and I look like this lady so is this how I'm gonna turn out and I was five at the time and so that was the first I we we call that the first time that I started to pick up on the difference. Yeah, because I feel like as kids, everyone's small for the most mm-hmm. part. So it's really, it must have been hard for you to differentiate, you know, as a four-year-old when you still are about the same height as people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't until like, I have a younger brother too. And so when he grew up and got a lot taller than than I did, like I, I definitely would have picked up on that and doing a lot of sports growing up. Like my friends are so much faster than me. So it was it was a pretty, you catch on pretty quick. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And when did you get into swimming and how? Yeah. So I, uh, 
like I just mentioned, I was involved in a lot of sports. And so I played soccer. I did competitive dressage. I played on the rep team for North Delta for softball, did high school basketball. I did a lot of things and swimming came along right at the the peak of my frustration where all my friends were uh, being able to like progress and they were making the select teams and I was left behind. And um, it just was getting really frustrating because my size was definitely limiting me in the athletic area. And then I started swimming at the big end of 2008. So right in 2008, 2009, and I was 12 at the time. And I joined swimming because my brother's swim club coach at the time knew about Paralympic swimming. And I remember he came to me one day and he said, Hey, Danielle, like you should join swim club. You could be really good. And then being 12 and I hear that I could be really good. I was like, Oh, I should give this a try. And 13 years later, I'm still doing it. So it's uh, definitely, (laughs) it was a good choice. Yeah, it sounds like you made the right decision. Yeah, I'd say so. It's worked out pretty well so far. <laughs> not, not, too, not too bad. We could <laughs> not say. too bad. Not too bad. In the intro, we talked a little bit about a couple of your big accomplishments and obviously going mm-hmm. to Tokyo. Just for our audience, can you give a quick rundown on how para swimming classification works? Um, because I feel like it's a little complicated. I know you told me about five years ago. Um, and then also what classes you race in. Yeah, totally. Okay, so grab a pen and paper and we'll test you at the end of this episode. Um, Just kidding. But so the Paralympic sport classification is just a whole other complicating situation. But specifically for swimming, what they do is there's 14 disability classes and there's 10 physical, three visual and one intellectual impairment. So I have a physical disability. And so they range our disabilities on a scale from like one to 10. So if you're a one that is like severely disabled, like there's, you could maybe have one arm, but no legs and two fingers on your, on your arm, or you could be a quadriplegic or something like that. That that would be a one. And then a 10 would be someone with a less impairment. So someone who's missing an arm or someone who's missing a hand or someone who has like club feet would be a 10. And so for dwarfism, I fall right in the middle. So I'm a, I'm a six. So I'm not like too, like, I'm not like severely quote unquote disabled and I'm not able, more able. So I'm like right in the middle. And then they divide the swimming events and the swimming strokes into three different categories. So my category is a six, six, and a six. And so that means that I'm a six for freestyle backstroke and butterfly. And then I'm a six for breaststroke. And then I'm also a six for the medley, which is all four. And then you can have different, depending on your impairment, you can, people could be an eight, seven, eight. So they would be considered more disabled for breaststroke, but less disabled for freestyle and uh, backstroke and, and what and so on. And then the visual classes are 11, S11, 12 and 13. And that is just depending on your, I guess your, your sight, or if you're completely blind or you can see a little bit. And then 14 is for the people with intellectual disabilities. That was like the best explanation. So thank you. Oh, and I, perfect. I, it was so good. I remember you saying to me in years ago, it just depends on how disabled you are. Yeah. <laughs> Which is true. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also really interesting that you can be in different classes depending on the stroke. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure getting classed is a whole process and that that must be pretty intense to go through. 
Yes, especially depending on what type of impairment you have. For me, it's pretty well known that if you have achondroplasia, you're going to fall into the six category. Um, But there's also like there's height limits on that. So if I was a tall acon, I might not make it in that class anymore and I would be bumped up to a seven. So I have a friend with hypoachondroplasia. So that's a different type of dwarfism than I do, but she's taller and she races as a seven. She's only a couple inches taller, but our, um, our like limbs are different, different lengths. And so she would be considered a little less disabled than me, but really she has a very different figure than you. And it's amazing that that makes you a whole different category in swimming. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So thank you for that rundown again. No problem. I know you said you got into swimming at about the 2008, Mm -hmm. was there a certain race or point in your career where you thought like, Hey, I can really do this. And like, you know, everyone said you'd be good at it, but like, you know, now maybe like put the Paralympics in sight and on that vision board, or has it always been a goal from day one? Um, yeah, I think definitely being when I started swimming and being told that, Hey, you could really give this a go and you could be good. Like I, the, the goal is to go to the Paralympics. Like if you are a para athlete, that's like the pinnacle of your, um, athletic career. Like that's, it's like for able-bodied athletes, everyone strives to go to the Olympics and for disabled athletes, it's the Paralympics. And so that was, that has always been the goal. And in 2013, I really hit my stride in swimming. So my best event is the 100 meter breaststroke. And that was the how my dad taught me to swim. He taught me that stroke and it's just kind of stuck. And so that's always been my best event. And in 2013, right after the London Paralympics, I fell into a really good training program with this coach and I made really big gains. And so I was a complete underdog. Like nobody really knew who I was. And then all of a sudden I dropped a bunch of time and it was like, oh, you could be potentially metal potential. You could you could really do do well. And so that was kind of when I really started being a little bit more serious about wanting to go to the games and wanting to be good. And then that was 2013. And so then the next year I ended up uh, having my legs straightened. So a common procedure for people with achondroplasia is uh, we have, we have bowed legs. And so a lot of times we need to have our legs straightened and it's, it's quite common. And so I had a double leg osteotomy done in the end of 2014. So what they do is they broke my tibias and my fibulas and they um, notched my ankles and they like rotated some bones and uh, realigned my hips, knees and my ankles to, so that they we're in better alignment. And so that was like a major operation. I was in a wheelchair for a while. I was obviously out of the pool and that really set me back quite a, quite a, quite a lot, honestly. And I ended up missing the Rio Paralympic team, but that again, it's like when you're, when you have, when you have a disability, sometimes you have to prioritize your, your health and your, your physical fitness and you got to think more long-term. And so for me, if I wouldn't have had that operation done in the next 10 years from then, like I might not have been able to walk as much. I might not be able to do the things I like. And one day if I was to have children, like wait, like being pregnant, like that would have had a big effect on my body just because of my dwarfism. And so that was a a decision we made and not one that I regret, but definitely one that set me back a bit. 
it's so funny that you uh, brought up your osteotomy because that was literally in my next question. Well, I figured that this was a medical podcast and I was like, I'm just throw out that big word out there because I think this will be useful. That was so good. That was awesome. Um, Would you say that having that has been your biggest challenge so far? Physically, yes. I think I would say that. Yeah. Um, Especially going into it, I was told that the recovery was going to be a lot different than it was. I had I had so many different misconceptions and just like presuppositions of like what what was going to happen. And you know, you're you're a high level athlete already, so you go into it thinking that you're just going to like crush it. It's going to be great, and it really took away a lot of my freedom and a lot of uh, just like my independence. I would say because totally you're you're in a wheelchair you can't move your legs you have these full leg casts on and all of a sudden your parents have to do everything for you and I remember like I couldn't even take myself to school like my brother or my younger my younger brother would push me to school in a wheelchair and then he'd drop me off at my locker and then at the end of the day he'd come and he'd pick me up and we just do that for like months at a time until I was able to walk and get there by myself <laughs> well we thank James for that Yes, we do. Thank you, James. Thank you very much. Yeah, I can imagine you go in with certain expectations and mm-hmm. sort of what you think is going to happen. And then it's also really hard on your mind when it doesn't always go that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think even I think most people with disabilities would say this too, is like you you have already like a type of, you crave independence and you crave like this ability to do things for yourself. And often like society doesn't see that in you and they already assume that you can't do things. And so when you're put in this situation, then when you literally can't do it, but you're used to proving people wrong, it is a little tough, especially when you're like 16, 17 and you're like, what the heck? Mm -hmm. And I really appreciated your point on making this decision for you now so that you could be Mm -hmm. better later. And that's an extraordinarily challenging decision to make. And I feel like that has kind of been in the forefront of the talk about Olympics. Mm-hmm. Emma and I did a podcast uh, in season one on the Olympics as well, too. And we talked about, you know, Simone Biles withdrawing for her own mental health and mm-hmm. making those decisions for you right in the moment, even though that is the pinnacle of your athletic career, making your own personal time as important as well. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I really appreciate this change in the shift that we're seeing. Yeah, so do I. Cause honestly, like we're only going to be athletes for, for athletes. I'll speak on that. Cause um, that's what I'm doing right now, but like, we're only going to be athletes for so long. And the day that you retire is the day that you are no longer a competitive athlete. And so what, what are you going to do? And if you've destroyed your body, if you destroyed your mental health to the point of like the rest of your life being difficult, was it worth it? And I think for, for myself, like I, I have a chondroplasia until the day I die. And so that's, that's not going away, but swimming is one day going to come to an end. And I, I don't want to have mistreated my body in a way where I can't continue living. So it's, it's in times are definitely changing in regards to that. And on that note, do you have any sport related specific recovery that you do? Yeah. So I train in Montreal at the high performance center. So we swim out of the Olympic pool here and we have a whole team of support staff that help us. So I have a a sports psychologist that I meet with weekly. We have um, physiotherapists, we have a team doctor, we have everything that we need to help, to help us. And we have a 
physiologists who will tell us and will report back like our our fatigue levels and if we're if we need to step back and so we're very like everything is very fine-tuned and very like specific to us and so I definitely have the the support to do that and um my my psychologist has been incredibly helpful over these last few years and my physiotherapist has held my body together so they've they've all been really helpful in that sounds like you have an army working behind you hey got that right (laughs) do you have a favorite memory in your career so far Oh, favorite memory. Um, I think definitely going to Tokyo and racing at my first Paralympic Games. Like, how can that not be exciting? How can that not be like super cool? Because I mean, I, I, I swam for 13 years and I kept missing this goal that I had. And I've always had the goal of going to the games and then to finally be able to, to be there and to stand on the blocks. And I'll, I'll never forget walking behind the blocks and getting ready for my race and because of COVID like there was nobody in the stands and there's this like huge like state-of-the-art stadium that's just completely empty and you're about to do the one thing that you've always wanted to do and just the contrast in like having it empty but just being like literally about to fulfill a dream was the coolest like weirdest but most like indescribable feeling to be there to do that so that was definitely my favorite moment of my career because it's I got what I wanted and I did what I wanted to do and now it set new goals I guess congratulations I, Thank it's you. such an honor to hear your story this is very inspiring oh well, thanks I'm so glad. proud I loved watching you on my little oh, thanks Emma. <laughs> of course um so what's next for you in both your swimming career and your personal life? Oh, good question. So I am currently still in university. I've been plucking away at my undergrad degree for quite a long time. I met Emma when I was in my first year and she was in her last year. And uh, so I'm still doing that. And, but I will be finishing up in 2023, which is exciting. So three and a half semesters left we're getting closer um and then other things I'm doing is I'm still going to be swimming so I'm going to give the Paralympics another go so I'm going to be swimming for another three years to try to make Paris in 2024 and if all that goes well hopefully go to those games and then I will retire from swimming and then see kind of what else there is out there I don't know exactly what I'll be what I'll be doing but I know I'm still going to be swimming and going to get my education and then we'll see what happens after that. Those sound like some pretty big goals, but no doubt in my mind that you're going to be in Paris. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Got the faith. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're going to end it off with one last question here, just because I feel like you're such a great advocate for achondroplasia, especially in younger people. What advice do you have for other young people in or in not in sport with achondroplasia? I have this like saying, so like I I have this like minor plug, but I have a YouTube channel and it's called This Little Light. And I have this saying where I say like, we all, each of us have a unique light to shine into the world. And like my light doesn't look like yours. Your light doesn't look like mine. But when we shine them, we help make the world brighter. And I would say to anyone out there with achondroplasia or who just has a difference, who's just like, just anyone, honestly, that like, we each have a light to shine and only you have the power to shine that light. And so you're, 
your life is unique and special just the way that it is. And no matter what your body looks like, who, where you come from, what you've done, you can still choose to shine that and you can still choose to pursue life and set goals and have dreams. And you deserve it too, because we've all been placed on this earth, I believe for some purpose. And so you might as well live that out and figure out what that is. So that's what I would say, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. And I freaking love it. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. What a great message. The best. Find out how you can help others and mm-hmm. do that. You got to patent that, Danielle. Ah, uh, yes, I do. <laughs> hey, <Margaret. laughs> is before we go, is there anything else you want to plug or add in at the end? I would just like to thank honestly anyone who is um I'm really big on awareness. And so I just I appreciate when people come and ask questions and when they're curious about learning, when they're curious about making a difference and just hearing more about other people's stories. And so I just want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to this, even to hear about dwarfism and to hear about achondroplasia and um, just the beauty that you can find in people's differences. And it's not all tough and it's not all easy but it's definitely worth it and so I just want to thank everyone for listening wonderful and we will put Danielle's YouTube channel and her Instagram and Twitter in show notes at the bottom like and subscribe heck yeah yes I feel like if anyone needs a new inspiration in their life they have a new follow after listening to this absolutely oh that's cute Well, thank you again for visiting with us today. We really appreciate it. And thank you to the listeners who tune in and listen to our episodes every week. Emma, are we going to go to Paris in 2024? We're going to be in Paris. Yes, let's go. We'll have a whole cheering squad. We need those stands to be packed this time. Yeah, we're redeeming Tokyo and we're (laughs) we're overflowing that stadium next time. Heck yeah. Can't wait. Awesome. We'll see you then. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support our show, you can subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe even give us a rating and leave us a comment. Probably Not Lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone, still in our bedrooms. If you want to chat with us, you can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Gmail at Probably Not Lupus.